0: novelist straddles her home country and her adopted land, the U.S.
1: So I wanted to reflect something that I've seen among, so most Nigerians who are coming to the U.S. are not fleeing war, at least in this era. They are more economic migrants. So there is this phenomenon, and I've seen it even with my friends, you move to the U.S. for a better life because things work better. You know, you have more responsible leadership at the top of government. You have people who have a clear vision for what they want to see improve in the US. And you know, I mean, that may vary to some extent, but overall on balance, that's the idea that people have. And people look at the situation in Nigeria and they're like, oh, there's so many things that don't work. And no matter how I try, it's like banging my head against the wall. So. I'm going to go over there, try to make my life better, and then they leave, and then they realize I miss the sights and sounds and smells and foods, I miss everything about home, except I find home to be so chaotic. So I've had friends who've gone back and forth, you know, they get educated in the U.S., they go back, they take a job in Nigeria, they live there five years, six years, like, oh, this is why I left in the first place, they come back here. (laughs) A lot of the immigration stories I read about are about people, you know, fleeing either senseless violence or just abject poverty or whatever. But they're they're making a home in the US and they're not looking back. And with a lot of Nigerians I see a looking a lot of looking back and forth longingly, like, oh things could only get better there but so many people leave.
0: And it's a painful place to be.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: That's Omalola Ijoma Ogunyemi. We talk with her about her novel of interlocking short stories, Jolif Rice and Other Revolutions. Then we hearken back to our conversation earlier this year with No Violet Bulawayo about her novel of Zimbabwe, Glory. It was shortlisted for the Booker Prize. That's all coming up on today's Writer's Voice in-depth conversation with writers of all genres on the air since 2004. Thanks for joining us this hour on this station and at writersvoice.net. I'm Francesca Riannon. And hey, do you know you can go to writersvoice.net to find extra content with links, book excerpts, and extended interviews. Author Omolola Ijoma Ogunyemi was born and raised in Ibadan, Nigeria, but she's lived in the U.S. for many years. Her love for her homeland and its rich culture provide the inspiration for her novel, Jola Rice and Other Revolutions. It's a collection of linked short stories that follow a group of friends from their early years in a girls' boarding school, starting in 1986, and down into the middle of our own century, the year 2050. One reviewer said of the book, Jola Frice and Other Revolutions celebrates friendship, the power of community and home, and the joy of being a woman able to take control of her destiny. Ogunyemi's writing has the power to reverberate through generations. But as the title expresses, Celebration takes place within a political context that poses challenges for the book's characters. It tests their loyalty, their courage, and their hopes and dreams for themselves and their families. As they move between Nigeria and the U.S., they come to realize that while the powers that be can be cruel and oppressive in either country, friendship and solidarity provide salvation. The book emerged from Ogunyemi's short story, Joel of Rice and Revolutions, which appeared in Plowshares in 2017 and was listed among distinguished stories of 2017 in the Best American Short Stories 2018. It came out in September 2022 from Amistad Books, an imprint of HarperCollins. Omolola Ogunyemi, welcome to Writer's Voice.
1: Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much for having me on Writer's Voice.
0: This was really a wonderful collection of stories, connected stories or interlocking stories, as you say, Jolof Rice and Other Revolutions. We can tell from the title that Nigerian food will play a role, not a major one, but it does play a role in these stories. I learned a lot about Nigerian food. Tell us about Jolof Rice.
1: So jollof rice is eaten all over West Africa and it was, you know, it came from the Wolof people of Senegal and Gambia and just sort of filtered its way across the whole of West Africa. And there are just interesting jollof rivalries <laughs> across different countries. So every every West African c- country has its own version of jollof and the biggest rivalry is between Nigeria and Ghana. So Nigerians think they have the best jollof rice. Ghanaians think they have the best jollof rice. But jollof rice is essentially... Long grain rice simmered in a sauce that's made of tomatoes, bell peppers, onions, and a variety of spices. Some countries add like meat or shrimp or, you know, chicken to, to the pot. Um, some just have the rice, so it's practically vegan, and then have meat or other dishes on the side. It's, it's delicious.
0: <laughs> Boy, I- I'm going to check out some recipes. After this interview, I can tell you, it sounds wonderful. Um, These stories span from 1897 to 2050. But they center mostly on a span of time between 1986 and the early 2000s, because they, they follow a group of first girls, then women as they grow up, but a, a group of them. But before I get to them, I'd like to go back for a moment to before these girls appear in the stories, to the 1897 to 1931 story, the first story in the book, and a woman named adayoma she is a remarkable character who becomes a chief and marries a woman. Tell us about her.
1: So um, writing Adama's story was one of my favorite parts of writing this book, actually. And just for, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, the reason I chose to write that story, that story um, is fiction, but based on family lore. So when I was a teenager, my mom mentioned, uh, when I was a teenager growing up in Nigeria, my mom had mentioned that she had an aunt who had been married to a woman, to a wealthy woman. And I was like, wow. So it turns out that in um, the eastern part of Nigeria, where my mom is from, so it's sort of central eastern part of Nigeria, it was common at the time for a woman who was wealthy enough and found that she was infertile to be able to marry another woman who could have children and the community, the society would recognize the children as hers and the wife. So there's a term that Nigerian scholars have used for the wealthy woman, which is like the female husband. So the female husband marries a woman And that woman takes on lovers and any children are the female husbands. The society does not recognize the biological father. He has no rights to make any claims on those children or to raise them or to be involved uh, with them in any way. And I just thought that was absolutely fascinating. And um, uh, during the colonial period when the British came, there's a lot of cultural things that were not understood and frowned upon. And so that practice kind of, went away or got buried but I I just thought it was amazing that a woman at that time so women had sort of negotiated in a man's world because you know Nigeria by and large then and now is mostly a man's world they figured out a a way to carve out a a, a way for them to live the way that they wanted to live provided they had the means obviously
0: and well that's a wonderful story and I I apologize. I'm going to mispronounce something. So that's Adama is the name of the woman. Yeah, Adama. <laughs> okay. Um. Yeah, that's that's such a wonderful story. And there is a link, but it, it's not it's not a link that you strengthen. But there is a link between Adama, actually Adama's son appears, I, I assume that that's him. He becomes an uncle Uchema in yes one of the other stories, Uchena.
1: So Adoma is Nonso's step-grandmother, and Fodo, the woman that she marries, is Nonso's biological grandmother.
0: And so now tell us about Nonso and the other girls in this group.
1: So the the, the book really focuses on uh, four friends who meet in a Nigerian boarding school, Nonso, Aisha, Remy, and Sholakwe. And they meet in Nigerian boarding school in the 80s, and it's a boarding school that's kind of like the boarding school I went to, but it's a fictional. There's no actual boarding school by the name given in, given in the book. And these were schools set up by the Nigerian government as unity schools to bring children of from different walks of life. You know, parents could be millionaires or they could be street sweepers, or as long as you could pass an exam, you could go to the, one of the boarding schools. And so they were they were built as unity schools to bring people of varying ethnic backgrounds, different from different geographic regions of Nigeria together. And to some extent, I think was a success because, I mean, I got to meet and interact with people that I would never have otherwise met just because of where they lived in the country and so on. Um, So I wanted to reflect on that time and. I went to an all girls boarding school and we really thought, I mean, we thought we were going to run the world. (laughs) We were so excited. We'd get in spirited debates about world geography and politics and everything. We read the newspapers, you know, avidly. And it was just really, um, it was a great time to grow up in Nigeria. At that time, I think the Naira was one to one with the dollar. And so there was a lot there were a lot of things that middle class Nigerians could do then that are out of reach now. Naira is more like five hundred to one now.
0: Wow. So inflation has really eroded the living standards. Definitely. So we meet these girls first in nineteen eighty six and The action centers around a demonstration at this boarding school. So tell us a little bit about, well, I I mean, this is a demonstration very particular to this school, but it seems to reflect a larger political ferment of the time.
1: So, you know, when I was growing up, I I grew up on the campus of a university and students were always at the forefront of trying to bring about social change. You know, we had military dictatorships and essentially students and scholars were the ones who would, for the most part, stand up to military governments and try to make change or talk about what was wrong or right or wrong in society. And younger people also noticed that. So the, 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 the girls in this boarding school are much younger. But there's still that spirit of when you see an injustice, say something or try to do something. So they're trying to save their teachers. They have this tyrannical new uh, principal who is trying to bend everyone to her will and uh, fires some teachers who, who won't. And the girls are trying to get them back, but they don't have a real plan for how to do that. And so things kind of take an unexpected turn for them.
0: Yeah, and, and in the title this is Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions. So is this one of those revolutions is that part of what you're referring to in the title?
1: Yeah, that is part of what that, that is part of what I'm referring to.
0: Now, the reference is made that Nansa's uncle Uchenna went through the Biafran war. I remember that war, but I I don't remember the war particularly itself, but what I remember is the starvation, I think, that was in its wake. Can you tell us a little bit about the political situation that that was about?
1: So um, there was a a pogrom in the, it was basically inter-ethnic violence, and there was a pogrom in the northern part of Nigeria where a lot of people of um, Igbo descent were essentially butchered, put on trains, and sent back to the Eastern part of the country that inflamed tensions in the East and ultimately led to the Eastern part of Nigeria, which includes a lot of the Igbo people, but also includes other groups uh, deciding to secede from Nigeria and form the Republic of Biafra. So there was a war essentially fought by different parts of the country to to prevent that secession. And in the end, uh, Nigeria prevailed, but at a very great cost. So it's one of the nuances with Uchenna's story is he grew up in in Lagos, which is the Yoruba part. So essentially, he grew up in a part of the country that was at war with the part of the country where his mothers were from. And so he was married to a Yoruba woman and her family, you know, hides him. So the people who treat him well, the people who don't. But he's essentially in let's say enemy territory during the war and is still bitter about it.
0: Now, one of the stories is one where Nanso uh Nanso sees a ghost. She goes to a and I believe she's she's a child if I remember in this
1: Yes, story. she she is a child.
0: Well tell us about that ghost and then I'm going to ask you a, a follow up to that.
1: So, Nonso, for the first time, I mean, her mother is is a history professor in the book, and she knows something, she's heard some things about the transatlantic slave trade, which she's never really had to come to terms with it, and her mother decides it's time to educate her about that and takes her to one of the um, forts in Ghana. So there's there's two, there's uh, Cape Coast and Elmina. I focused the story on Elmina, which was originally created by the Dutch and then taken over by the Portuguese. And a lot of um, people were enslaved and taken to mostly Brazil from there. But um, so she's coming to terms that with, with the fact that, you know, children her age were enslaved. She's coming to terms with that history And the way I see it, it's sort of a sympathetic response, She's, she's, she's trying to make a connection, she's trying to save people in her own way, but there's nothing she can do about the past. And so she essentially conjures up this person who she then tries to save, and that's basically the meat of that story.
0: If you've just joined Writer's Voice, we're talking with Nigerian author Omalola Ogunyemi about her novel, "Jola Rice and Other Revolutions. You know, it made me think of how in the U.S., when we think about those places in Africa that were, you know, where people were captured and taken into slavery, we look at it from the point of view of over here which is, which is understandable. Oh, of course. But I realized that I'd never thought to myself. So this is my question. I never thought to myself, what do Africans think? What do the people think who, who live in those areas? What do they think of those places that are still there, still exist are now, you know, museums,
1: um, historical sites? I think it's a, it's, you know, it's a source of, it's, it's horrifying. It's, it's, a source of horror. I wanted to talk about that in particular because, you know, my grandmother was had tattoos on her face, but none of her children did. So one day I asked my mom, why does mama have tattoos on her face? And she said, oh, her, her, her parents put markings on her face. So if she was ever taken, no matter where she was, if they saw her, they would know that was her. That was a legacy of the trade. The the kind of instability and terror that I mean, there were Africans who were involved in the trade, but there were Africans, most of the victims of the trade were Africans. So it's just the kind of instability and terror that people had to live through. And that still in my grandmother's time, obviously, by by, by her time, the, the trade had been uh, abolished, but there was still that fear. So her parents felt they had to do that. She didn't feel she had to do that for her children. And I wanted to to talk about that because I don't see that talked about enough.
0: Yeah, I mean, we do hear about the, the ravages of colonialism visited upon the African continent and the countries within and the societies within, but I don't think I've ever seen what the trauma of slavery did to the societies.
1: Yeah, I think it's sort of controversial because people often think of Some Africans just colluding with European powers, so it was a zero sum game. It was it was a lose lose for the Africans because you had people fighting, essentially different groups fighting each other, and whoever won would take you know captives, and those people would be sold and enslaved. But then the next time they might be on the losing end, and they might be captured. So it was a period of great instability. And with the introduction, you know, the victors got more guns to make more war. It just was a lose-lose situation. And it wasn't surprising that uh, Africa was able to be colonized so easily after all that period of instability and war.
0: Destabilization, not just instability. Um And... you say you went to a boarding school where one of the ideas was to bring bring people together, students yeah. together.
1: They were informally called unity schools. So the Nigerian federal government established them and essentially subsidized very heavily the education so that it was affordable for anyone who could pass a national common entrance exam and, and pick one of those schools to go to. And I'm grateful for that. There are many things that, you know, various Nigerian governments have Failed Nigerians. Um, there are very many ways in which they failed Nigerians, but in terms of education and particularly enf- emphasizing girls' education, I think they they did a decent job.
0: Yeah, and the the power of of the women in your stories is is uh, really evident. I mean, this is, you know, I I don't want to put a. It's not in an ideological sense, but it's a it's a feminist story because these women are so strong and and so beautiful. But I I my question was. If those are unity schools, what are the sources for so much of the ethnic violence that we've seen in recent years in in Nigeria?
1: A lot of it comes from, it's it's a legacy of the colonial era. So if you're going to sort of conquer a group of people, and this should sort of start to seem familiar to folks who live in the U.S. because I'm unfortunately seeing some of that here. You play up the divisions. Play up the divisions, so you play people against each other, you point out all the ways in which they're different, you never look you know you never talk about their commonalities, and so they're at each other's throats, and it's easier for an outside group to essentially take over you're so busy warring you don't even notice what you're losing and um so the idea was to bring girls and uh, and boys so some of the some of those uh, schools were uh, mixed gender but to bring children basically across from different walks of life from different backgrounds across the country and they essentially live together and see we're not that different we're so I mean many of my uh, former classmates I consider like uh, being my sisters because I didn't have a biological sister so that's that's it was really it was really nice to have you know girls or women who have your back and who kind of understand something about you because you grew you kind of grew up together in in, in a way and i i like that idea uh, i thought it was a really brilliant idea to try to bring about unity obviously there have there has to be other things done but this was one way that the government tried to 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 foster unity <laughs>
0: And Omalola Ogunyemi, in these stories in Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions, there's a lot of traveling back and forth between Nigeria and the United States. I mean, you speak without an accent.
1: Oh, I I think I have one, but
0: okay. (laughs) Not detectable to me you sound like you were born here but you were not born here talk yes. about that um that travel back and forth you know th- these girls these women remain so connected like sisters uh, as you describe your own friends throughout the decades and uh this this movement back and forth is one that many of them do talk talk about that why does that happen what is the connection between the two? What is the pull of America and the pull of the native land?
1: Right. So I wanted to reflect something that I, I've seen among, so most Nigerians who are coming to the U.S. are not fleeing war, at least in this era. They are more economic migrants. So there's, there's this phenomenon, and I've seen it even with my friends, you know, you You move to the U.S. for a better life because things work better. You know, you have more responsible leadership at the top of government. You have people who have a clear vision for what they want to see um, improve in the U.S. And, you know, I mean, that may vary to some extent, but overall, on balance, that's the idea that people have. And people look at the situation in Nigeria and they're like, oh, There's so many things that don't work. And no matter how I try, it's like banging my head against the wall. So I'm going to go over there, try to make my life better. And then they leave. And then they realize I miss the sights and sounds and smells and foods. I miss everything about home. Except I find home to be so chaotic. So I've had friends who've gone back and forth. You know, they get educated in the U.S. They go back. They take a job in Nigeria. They live there Five years, six years, like oh, this is why I left in the first place. They come back here, <laughs> and so th- there is that. You know, I I don't. A lot of the immigration stories I read about are about people, you know, fleeing either senseless violence or just abject poverty or whatever. But they're they're making a home in the U.S. and they're not looking back. And with a lot of Nigerians, I see a, look, a lot of looking back and forth longingly, like, oh, things could only get better there. But so many people leave.
0: And it's a painful place to be.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, but speaking of things working at the higher levels of government, well, that's beginning to break down here. And you have this really remarkable last chapter that takes place in 2050. I'm going to quote from it because it really struck me you I was reading your words that were echoing almost to the letter what I was talking to myself this morning before I even started reading again in your book mhm mm-hmm. so this is a part where Aisha is talking is telling her I believe it's her ex-husband father of of uh one of her children that she's decided to leave the United States and go back to Nigeria, and she says, "I feel I've been living on a roller coaster since twenty sixteen, moving from depression to anger to fear to action and back again. Some days I lie in bed paralyzed and think I'm about to have a stroke. I've marched, i voted, I've petitioned, I've written postcards, phone banked, I donated to every sane candidate and organization there is, etc. I mean." It's exactly what I was saying to myself this morning. You know, only I don't have another country I can go back to. Right. This is a terrifying
1: time. It is. I mean, I wrote I wrote that story in twenty eighteen for context. And so I'd been in the US for a while. I've as an immigrant to the to the US you see the good and the bad, but on, on balance it's 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 good. So there is, I have experienced racism and discrimination, but on balance, I've gotten a lot of things done in the U.S. that I don't think I would have gotten done, you know, anywhere else. But in after 2016, for the first time, I said, am I safe here? Is it time to go back? My husband is not Nigerian. So he's like, we're, we're, <laughs> we're not going anywhere. You know, we stand, we fight. But the story took the shape that it did because of events you know xenophobia you know talk about whole countries and just devaluing people but it was a kind of divisive rhetoric that I'd also sort of seen back home when politicians are more interested in consolidating power than in helping people and I hadn't seen that in this way here before and that just really shocked me I, I needed to put pen to paper And I'd done all those things that I said.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and the picture that you paint of of the U.S. in 2050, uh, it has a chilling logic to it. It's entirely believable. A nativist government, a place where, you know, if you can't pay your uh, hospital bill, you end up in uh, a kind of debtor's prison, slaving away for the hospital. I mean, this is... is, uh, It's almost like I feel that nothing can shock anymore because the most shocking things to me that I never imagined have already happened.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a sad part of it. Well, I, I was hoping I was writing this and hoping that enough people see if you take certain things to a logical conclusion, here's what could happen. So let's make sure that it doesn't happen.
0: In the acknowledgements, you acknowledge the great late great science fiction writer Octavia Butler
1: Oh yes, I read a lot of her.
0: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about her influence on you.
1: Yeah. So in in one of the, you know, uh, parable of the or parable of the talents, she actually as as reading that again and I had seen I mean down to the slogan make America great again. I'm just like, "Oh my god. Like she had envisioned some of the things that were happening. It's a little bit different, but it's a, it's the same kind of thing." And I was like, That means that there's been this undercurrent going on for so long, but people didn't have the permission to act the way that they started to act. They were finally given permission from the very top to act on the basest instincts. And it's really sad because it's kind of hard to rein that back in once you've let it out. So she got me thinking um, and yeah, I, I, I wrote what I was feeling in the moment. From twenty eighteen on and it's powerful, but
0: it also this this uh collection of stories, this novel and stories really shows another way of being because the women themselves, the characters in these stories are wonderful and compassionate and supportive of each other. I mean they're full human beings, but they're they're friends, and it's that friendship is such a bullying influence in this wonderful book
1: exactly. And I wanted to show the power of community, the power of friendship. <laughs> if we can look more to those kinds of things, I think we can find our way out. But it, it's, I'm not going to pretend that it's easy. It's not. Uh, but I think we can find our way out. I think we can find our way back.
0: Well, it has just been great to talk with you, Omolola Ogunyemi, about your wonderful book, *Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much again for having me. It was a pleasure. Omolola Ogunyemi's poetry, short
0: stories, and essays have been published widely. Jola Rice and Other Revolutions is her first novel. Read an excerpt at writersvoice.net. You can also find a link to a recipe for Jola Rice. Next up, we revisit another novel from the African continent, No Violet Bulawayo, Tells us about her novel of Zimbabwe, Glory. Stick around. <laughs>
2: La belle ou la bête aujourd'hui.
0: La
1: finition a l'air un La
0: That was King Sunia Ade. Welcome back to Writer's Voice. I'm Francesca Riannon. Some of the greatest contemporary women writers writing in English come from the continent of Africa. Think Chimamanda Adichie. I expect our earlier guest today, Omolola Ogunyemi, to join their ranks. Another wonderful emerging writer is Zimbabwean novelist No Violet Bulawayo. Her debut novel, We Need New Names, was shortlisted for the 2013 Man Booker Prize. Her second novel, Glory, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize in 2022. We spoke with her about Glory back in April. Let's listen back to that conversation. No Violet Bulawayo gained acclaim for her first novel, We Need New Names. It was a finalist for the Booker Prize and received many other awards. Her new novel, Glory, bids fair to win similar acclaim. A trenchant satire inspired by George Orwell's Animal Farm, Glory follows the fall of the old horse, leader of the fictional African nation of Jedada. His fall brings great hope that justice will finally come, decades after Jedada's revolution against colonialism. A young goat, Destiny—all the characters in the book are animals—lost her father when the revolution became a dictatorship. Now she hopes things will be different. What Destiny learns about her own country's history and its fight for freedom is more than a metaphor for Zimbabwe. It holds lessons for all people who fight for justice for themselves, their families, their nation, and the world. Noviolet Bulawayo, welcome to Writer's Voice. Thank you for having me. Glory, this is a thinly disguised Swiftian parody of Zimbabwe's political history, the Mugabe regime and its aftermath. You said in an interview that this book, quote, felt like responding to a call of duty. What did you mean by that?
2: I am coming from... The belief that to, at least for me personally, to be an artist means to be engaged with the times. And Glory felt like that kind of project that asked me to engage with such a momentous time in Zimbabwe's history, which was the fall of Robert Mugabe on November 14, 2017 and the aftermath that followed. Mm -hmm. For those who are not aware of, of Zimbabwean history, at least the recent Zimbabwean history, Robert Mugabe had been in power for close to four decades before his ouster by coup in 2017. It was a complicated moment of hope and optimism, complicated in the sense that the guy who was going to take over had actually been his deputy. But still, there was an overall feeling that it was still a moment of turning a corner because surely we had seen the worst and things could not get um, any worse than what we had been through. And of course, 2018, we had an election that quickly proved to us how mistaken We had been in that hope as it became clear that the change that we had hoped for was not coming. And beyond that, we were still in the same unfortunate predicament. So glory was my way of telling a story that I'd seen unfold, but also telling beyond that story to the hope that I felt obligated to right toward to create, of course in a fictional sense. But I'd come to the realization that, you know, as a creative, I had to give something to the space, the space that was Zimbabwe, by way of dreaming, dreaming for a future that I wanted to see a Zimbabwe that I hope to see. So that is, yeah, that is the story of of how Glory was was born.
0: No. No Violet Bulawayo is a pen name. Um, Bulawayo features in this book. Tell us a little bit about your own history in relationship to the events of of the book that they they recount. They they really do go back to, to independence and the revolution against colonialism. So tell us just a little bit about your own history in relationship to this.
2: Uh, so I was born uh, right after independence from British colonial rule. So I'm a child of the 80s, a child of uh, promise. But it was a complicated time because between the years of uh, 1983 to 1987, um, the country witnessed a wave of mass killings that saw so an estimated 20,000 people um, dead. And of course, that's a the, 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 the figure is loose. That's just an estimate. I'm not sure how close to accuracy um, that is. And that happened in the predominantly um, Debele regions of the country. Um, The area is called Mateveriland, and it also happened in Manekaland as well. So in as much as it had strong, uh, it happened along ethnic lines, there were people of non-Devide origin who were killed as well, who suffered as well, because it was Robert Mugabe's way of getting rid of the opposition. Now that period figures in glory, because it's a story that is really um, important for me. It's a story that needs to be told. It's a part of Zimbabwean history that we have tried to sweep under the carpet or deny or complicate. And of course, when it comes to the page, there is no better sight than to speak the unspeakable. In the fictional country of Chidada, I invent a region called Bulawayo. It there's no there is a place called Wulawa in Zimbabwe. It's my hometown, it's my hometown, it's where I grew up. But the Bulawayo in Jidada is fictional. I was really attracted to the name Bulawayo itself, which is not a beautiful name. It's a it's a name that speaks of tragedy. It literally translates to a place of slaughter. So as somebody who's interested in names and naming, I thought, okay. Um there's actually no better way of 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 naming this place where atrocities happen in the fictional country of 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 Jeddah. so that's where the the real story and the fictional story and my own background kind of uh,
0: collide and how courageous to take the name of a place that means slaughter I mean how how was that? How is that for you? You did this voluntarily. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I, I did.
2: I did. It, it's 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 layered. It's it's a it's a complicated name. I wish it was you know it had a better meaning. But the thing is that it's you know it, it's it's you can't run from reality, no matter how difficult, no matter how ugly. Um, but at the same time, Pulau is the real place. My hometown is also a place of so much, you know, complexity, so much beauty. I have fond memories of growing up there. Uh, it's still my favorite city. Um, there's so much, you know, there's so much art, for instance, so much so much culture. And there really is a way in which places um, end up going beyond their names. I don't know if that makes sense. That, of course, the name is there. But then a place can turn out to be to be something else. And more than anything, I'm 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 interested in just acknowledging the the, you know the 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 memory, that yes this kind of thing happened in this particular place.
0: But there's also there's also more to it. And that kind of complexity really does run through your book. Uh, I'm going to return to that theme in just a minute. But first, um, this book, Glory, this novel is a kind of animal farm. I mean the character the um the characters are animals. You know, Mugabe is the old horse. Um Tuvi who takes over from him, who is a stand-in for Emerson. Uh I'm not sure I pronounced his name correctly. Mangagawa? Mangagwa. That's close. Mangagwa. He is uh he's also a horse. Uh he's called the Savior in the book. But then there are the defenders. These are the security forces. They're dogs. Talk about the defenders, and you know who they represent in reality. Uh, The defenders are this vicious pack of dogs who,
2: in reality, represents the security forces, the police, and the army. And of course, we know that in a space, in a situation of you know uh tyranny is always the police and the security forces that are not only doing the dirty work for the leadership but they are also protecting them while at the same time dishing out in some cases the most heartbreaking uh violence towards towards citizens so that's 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 who the defenders are. That's who the dogs
0: are. Right, and and so this book is is written in some ways from two points of view. One is that of the tyrants who are are there, um, whether that's Mugabe or that's um, Tuvi, and that of the people. You know, those are the two points of view that we really hear about. And I was so interested because you you really express you explore the contradictions in the point of view of the people of the you say for example we'd be cheering one moment and then we'd remember what we'd been reduced to over the years and weep and i wonder if you could talk about that experience you know the the hope that ever springs again Memory and how it's suppressed, you know all the the contradictory ways in which people's emotions are, are played in a situation of of tyranny like this. And and I have to say, I'm I'm beginning to feel the same way, in my own country. I certainly did through the years of Trump and the fear of what's ahead. So, can you talk about this psychological contradiction?
2: Um, I was interested in how, evi- how spaces of violence um not just physical visible violence but psychological violence actually messes up the people who have to deal with it you know they are for instance the the the, the moment that you just alluded to is a moment of joy But then because people have been through so much, so much disappointment, people have been beaten down, Um, those moments are no longer as pure as they would be anymore, because behind them is the memory of another time when they went through um, whatever they went through. And those moments kind of tend to show up randomly to complicate whatever people are people are feeling. And it's it's quite interesting. It was interesting to witness this back in 2017 when you know we all woke up to the news that you know our long-serving leader had been deposed. While you were celebrating, there were people were actually weeping, weeping because of things like the Kukuraundi, weeping because of Things that they had gone through at different points, you know. So it was a complicated joy. Yes, he's gone, but there's this thing that happened, and it's not resolved for me. So I was interested in 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 what those
0: moments looked like and what those moments uh, meant. This is Writer's Voice, and we're talking with No Violet Bulawayo about her new novel, Glory. You mentioned the Gukurandi. That was the time in the early 80s when all that terrible violence went on. I mean, of course, the terrible violence continued on, but not in that kind of sweeping sense that you spoke about before. Um, so this is a book also about deep, deep trauma, not just of a people in a country, but the individuals within it. So tell us about your character's destiny and her mother, Simi So. Or uh, is, is my, how do I pronounce her mother's name?
2: You pronounced it perfectly. It's pronounced how it's spelled. Uh, destiny is a young bot who is returning to Jedada from the wherever's. And the reason that she left was because of violence and trauma. I think uh, she leaves around 2008, which in the real country was a time of of, of a violent, an election full of hope, but that turned violent when uh, Mugabe re- refused to leave. So it's around that time that Destiny leaves. She comes back 10 years later, after the fall of the person she associates with her trauma. Um, ambivalent of course about home because it's complicated for her. Home has become this place that actually um, forced her out but she returns to find that her own mother Simiso actually has her own secret history of trauma and it becomes a sad but necessary moment of reconciling both their histories sharing their stories. And of course, for Destiny, she goes on to to write a book about these different traumas, these uh, these different histories. And what I was interested there is the idea of reconciling with our pasts, of confronting our pasts, and most importantly, of putting them on record, you know, of speaking them so they are out there with the hope that once they are up, out there, they become collective stories as it happens in glory. Because once Destin writes her book, um, I won't spoil the book for the reader, I won't spoil the book for the reader. But there is a moment in which the story be- goes beyond her and her mother and becomes and opens up to, 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 to the community. We have the memorial, the Good Ground the Memorial that comes about as a result of the sharing and processing of those stories.
0: As, in fact, you are doing in this book, No violent Bulawayo, in your wonderful novel, Glory, this whole way in which the people live in fear for decades and decades, and then at a certain point, they lose their fear. Could you talk yes. about that process?
2: You know, I've realized that in as much as we speak of tyranny, and in the case where it seems to endure for as long as we have seen it happen in spaces like zimbabwe i feel like there is a way in which citizens also become participants become enablers of that tyranny and the most obvious being this sense of hopelessness you know that okay it's 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 how it is they own the country let them run it, Um, it doesn't matter if we vote, they will win this resignation. And of course, there are layers of complication behind that stance that I do understand. If the regime is violent, for instance, people will rather choose to just stand on the sidelines. But by taking that position, they're actually saying, okay, we're going to stand here and let tyranny, this tyranny run its course. In glory, there comes to a point where people just decide that no, enough is enough. And interestingly, that choice to actually stand up without them doing much of anything, there is some violence, yes, but the mere effect of people saying we are not having it anymore, um, a moment that is shared by the defenders, the dogs, the security forces, who also decide that, look, why are we standing against people um, who are actually going through the same thing that we are going through? And the dogs actually decide not to raise their weapons against the citizens. It becomes that, uh, that kind of turning point. And that's the story that I'm interested in. That's the story that I hope people Existing in similar conditions, not just in Giidad or Zimbabwe, but all across the world where tyranny exists, I'm interested in what they make of that story,
0: yeah, and we're confronting that right now when it comes to you know the invasion of Ukraine and also in in this book where the roots of of the corruption, the roots of the violence are really in colonialism. So I wonder if you could talk about that broader. Message of, you know, of violence and the violence of corruption in particular, because this, this is what is striking me more and more, and that is that corruption and violence and tyranny are just three sides of the same phenomenon. Um, definitely, and what is heartbreaking is that
2: our current crop of leaders and. Not just in 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 Zimbabwe alone. If you are just looking at their journeys from liberators at one point, liberators that we celebrated in the case of my generation, who really were brought up in those golden years of promise, and how they quickly moved into versions of the oppressors that they claimed to replace, and you know, it's, 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 it's a question of power and how power has been, how that power um has sort of been corrupted for personal gain, personal profit. There's a reason why most of our leaders are filthy rich, for instance, even though most of our citizens, most of our um, Most of our countries are poor. It's a disparity that really doesn't make sense. And in order for that state of affairs to persist and stay, tyranny has to come into play because you need the violence. They need the violence to actually keep their positions, to keep their um, empires running, for lack of a better word. So it it is a vicious cycle that we have to find a way to to dismantle if we are going to be free.
0: And then so to go back to that losing the people, you know, losing their fear, you say something I think really beautiful, and that is that we discovered that the only way to be a better Jidada was to start by being each other's treasures. So when you lose your fear, something else is born out of that. Talk, talk about that. Um. When you lose your
2: fear, I think you make everything possible, everything in the sense that the tyranny is counting on you to kind of stay in your lane. When you lose your fear, you lose that lane. You have no lane to stay in. There are no boundaries for you to observe. And by extension, if you lose your lane, If you lose your boundaries, you become interested in what is happening to the next person. You talk to the next person, and hopefully through that process, you also realize that you are pretty much in the same predicament, regardless of these artificial borders like class, like race, like gender, as it happens in at the cusp of the truth revolution, people realize that they are actually bound together, that there is some need of solidarity, that their story is a collective story. And sure enough, you know, people from all across the country um, flock down to this one tiny location called Lozke and just decided to stand up. They are fearless for the very first time in in, in history. To the extent that their government is actually shocked, I think there's a moment when they are having an emergency conference, and the president demands to know what has happened to the fear because he has spent so many years working on that fear. He wants it back because he also has the knowledge that without that fear he cannot exist. Have you ever seen people lose their fear um There has been moments I think the just thinking back to some of the the things that have been um happening across the the world when I wrote Glory I know in that in Zimbabwe after the 2018 election an election that was contested there were so many ir- irregularities I saw people go to protest knowing what they were dealing with. Of course, things turned violent. And I think about seven people lost their lives. I saw them lose their fear again. Um, a few months later in, in January, again, we saw the biggest waves of protest that I'd ever seen in my lifetime. So those were moments that I felt, okay, um, this is what, losing your fear looks like. And I actually owe some of glory, some of my thinking around glory to that that
0: kind of moment. It's such a powerful, powerful novel. Uh, Noviolet Bulawayo, thank you so much for talking with us here on Writer's Voice. It's a book that shocks and inspires, and it's just a terrific story. Thanks again. Thank you. That was Noviolet Bulawayo talking with us in April. Coming up next week on Writer's Voice, we talk about two terrific books for young readers of all ages. Deborah Lehman tells us about her philosophical biography, Socrates, A Life Worth Living. And Sima Yasmin teaches us how to inoculate ourselves against misinformation. Her book is What the Fact?, finding the truth in all the noise that's it this week for writer's voice go to writersvoice.net to listen to or download past shows plus find out more about our guests or read book excerpts you can also sign up to get the show delivered straight to your inbox or subscribe to the podcast and the newsletter and follow us on twitter at writer's voice all one word i'm your host francesca riannon